The reading for today comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and chapter 7, verse 54, through chapter 8, verse 3. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me? As we pray, O Lord, we long to be able to um, be built up by this passage. We long to be able to see you as you see us. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So we are studying, as I mentioned, the beginnings of the Christian church uh, after Jesus Christ had um, been crucified, had died, had risen, and ascended into heaven. And um, over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at threats increasing against the church as it begins to proclaim uh, the same gospel that Jesus proclaimed. And these continue to escalate where now we come to the story of the first martyr of this new church, Stephen. And I have to confess, when I read a passage like this or when I hear a passage or study a passage like this, it has two uh, effects upon me. One is inspiration, but also 
I'm being honest, I feel this guilt that I'm not like that. You know, it's kind of this, wow, you know, Stephen is facing this great opposition, and he's so courageous, and he's so gracious, and I feel like I shrink back. I try to avoid opposition. So the passage can end up, you know, having this effect where you end up feeling guilty that you don't measure up like that. And while the passage might prick our conscience a little bit, the point of it is not to lay us down with condemnation and guilt. We know that because that's never the point of the gospel. When Jesus says, they persecuted me and they'll persecute you, Yes, he's, he's giving a little bit of a warning, but he's not going, you're going to get it too. What he's trying to say to us is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to support you, and you won't be alone. You won't be alone when you face opposition and maybe even persecution. That's what we're getting here. And we get it through a creative way. Um, there's a, a key word in this passage, uh, a few, but one of them is this idea of face. Stephen's face, right? We're told uh, first of, of his face as he's facing persecution and gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then... There's also what Stephen faces, not only the persecution, but when he lifts his eyes heavenward, he gazed into heaven. And it's those two perspectives that I'd like us to look at together. The first one, this idea of uh, what does the face of the persecuted look like? What can it look like? Now, you know, the uh, practice of physiognomy. Does anybody know what that is? I didn't know that word until it's, it's uh, the belief that we can study faces and somehow see someone's character in their face. That you can see something of someone's character in their face. Now this goes way back to the ancient Greeks and it sort of had its heyday in, heyday in the 1800s. But really, you know, In the modern culture, it's been seen as junk science. But lately, there's more credibility given to it. Uh, For instance, there was a study just a couple years ago uh, in Ontario, and they they studied 90 ice hockey players. And uh, they studied their faces, and they noticed those that had wider faces from cheekbone to cheekbone were more prone to get penalties. They were more prone to get put in the penalty box. I'm just telling you that. (laughs) You know, studies that say that the more competent a politician looks, the better chances they'll be elected, or the more dominant a CEO looks, the more profitable their company will be. Now, whether you believe that stuff is true or not, there there, there are... Enough anecdotal spirits of uh, first impressions, right? 
I mean, we all see people and we form first impressions. And actually, once you form a first impression, it's really hard to budge away from that. That much is for sure. Now, Luke, our author, refers us to Stephen's face. He refers us to Stephen's face, and he wants us to see something there. But before we look at his face, there's a bigger parallel going on. And those of you that are familiar with the life and ministry and suffering of Jesus Christ, you may have picked up on it. Because Stephen the martyr and Jesus the martyr are being joined together here as an example. For instance... Both of them performed wonders and signs. Both Stephen and Jesus had wisdom that couldn't be resisted. Both Stephen and Jesus make reference to the Son of Man. Both Stephen and Jesus are tried before the high priest. They're both accused by false witnesses of blasphemy, of speaking against the law of Moses, of speaking against the temple, the holy place. Both of them cry out with a loud voice. Both of them commit their spirits to the Lord when they're dying. Both of them say, will you forgive my enemies? And so, Luke is trying to say, I want you to see that Stephen the martyr shares the experience of Jesus the martyr as he faithfully does ministry. But it's not only the experience, it's the character. It's the character of Jesus that's reflected in the face of Stephen. In chapter 7, just a paragraph before, uh, or rather in chapter 6 that we looked at two weeks ago, uh, seven uh, men were picked to help address an inequity in the community. Some of the Greek-speaking widows weren't getting daily distribution of food, and so they chose seven, seven of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And the first person that's mentioned on that list is they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of our passage, we're told that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Spirit of God so that he has the face of an angel. And here, there's sort of a hidden reference that's being brought out that uh, just as Stephen is accused of defaming the law of Moses, his face is shining like Moses when Moses received the law. He's shining with the radiance of God. So the point is this, what is filling Stephen's face, what is causing him to shine and radiate, isn't his wide jaw, it isn't, you know, Mr. Incredible's jaw, it's not dominance, it's not competence, it's not charismatic, it's not, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the It's the Spirit of God that is filling him in that moment, and that ought to give you and I hope how to give us hope because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ we've already found out in the book of Acts over and over the spirit of God the same spirit has been given to you 
And we should be praying every day, would you fill me with your spirit? And Jesus said, if we just ask, right? He's not going to say no. You know how to give good gifts, even though you and I are evil. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit? Fill us, Holy Spirit. There's no reason that you wouldn't have stood like Stephen in that moment. Because we have his spirit. In fact, you see it throughout church history. Uh, When persecutions broke out again in the 3rd and 4th century, and here in Carthage in North Africa, church history recounts the story of two young women. One was a noble woman named Perpetua, and the other was her servant or slave named Felicity. And we know about this because uh, Perpetua kept a diary, and before both of them were martyred, they were able to pass on their experience And Felicity, when she was in prison, she was also pregnant and went into labor and gave birth. And during that time, um, as she's suffering, she was being taunted by the prison guard. And the prison guard said, so you're suffering now. What are you going to do when they toss you to the beast? And Felicity answered, Right now, I must endure what I am suffering, but on that day, there will be someone inside of me to bear the pain on my behalf, since I'll be suffering for him. It's that same spirit, that same character. But what specifically? Because three things are mentioned. That Stephen was filled with wisdom, power, and grace. And I think it's fair, actually, to summarize that, as we find in the Gospel of John, of Jesus, who was filled with grace and truth. Stephen is filled with grace and truth. First of all, he speaks truth at a great cost to himself. We didn't have time to read, and I'd encourage you to go back and actually read his sermon that he preaches. Uh, You know, as I said before, Uh, Even though the office of diaconate in the church, the office of deeds and justice and mercy, flows out of Acts 6, which we saw last week, uh, these first, quote-unquote, seven were sort of transitional figures. They were like, you know, I don't want to say junior apostles, but they were doing a lot of things. They were doing miracles, but also preaching. And when Stephen preaches... He tells the truth, even though he knew what happened when Jesus told the truth. At the end of his narration, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, in fairness, he didn't start off with that line, okay? You know, there was development, right? But also there was context. I mean, he's not having cappuccino. He's not raking leaves and talking to his neighbor. He's, he realizes this is my last stand, right? And, and, and we need wisdom, right, as we talk and give the truth. We don't give the whole truth 
I'm so glad God doesn't give us the whole truth at one time. None of we'd all be dead, right? I mean, who could handle that? We'd be laid out. But also, he spoke the truth with grace and love, and we know that because his very dying words, would you forgive them? He has a heart for who he's talking to. He loves them. He wants them to know the grace of God. He wants them to be freed from the slavery of their performance religion and of their anger and their hatred in this idea that the synagogue had to be their fiefdom. He wants to see them free from those things. And we know at least one person was set free. And he's mentioned a couple times in there. That's Saul who would become the Apostle Paul. In fact, years later in the book of Acts, Paul would be on trial, giving testimony of his faith, and he would refer to this day, Stephen. He would say that even as I was imprisoning and beating people, the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Even way then, he's still reminded of the example. But it didn't drive him away in guilt because later we find in Timothy, one of his latter letters, he says, though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, the mercy and grace of God overflowed to me. He knew of the love of Christ, my friends. I just love this story in the scripture because we just read about him. I mean, he was like a raging bull. He's beating people. He's standing as they're being executed. You couldn't get further away from the love and grace of God. And it's that very person that Jesus showers with his unconditional love. Paul is the great prophet of grace and of love. And that was what enabled him to stand to his martyrdom. It wasn't that he felt guilty all those years. You know, as I've said often, the grace of God will lead you to radical acts of love and service that guilt and fear never will and never can. How do you stand like Stephen? You stand in the favor and the grace of God. I read this quote this week and I thought, you know, this is true. We are connected with two realities simultaneously. There is the lower reality of this world of human judgment. And there is the higher reality of the throne of God and divine judgment. Now, praise God for every time that the lower court reflects the higher court, right? This is God's provision. We, we thank God for lawyers and police officers and people that I'm, the world without reflecting the heavenly judgment, Right? It would be chaos, horror all the time. But there's another sense where you and I know that there is a judgment of the culture that Christians will always be on the other side of. Always. And so, to live in fear of that judgment, if if you and I, if we continue to devote ourselves to be built up by the culture, the praise and the applause of the culture, when scorn comes, you will crumble. You will fall. Paul knew that, and he actually says, out of the grace of God, because Paul was getting critiqued 
everywhere all the time. And he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. One of the things that inhibits you and I from speaking the truth in love is our dependence upon the world's approval, right? And our fear of judgment. We're a fear of obscene judgy, right? One of the great modern sins, being judgy. Or being fe- fear of being intolerant. And, and I know... Okay, you know, we sometimes live in the world of like stats and things we hear of Christians and what, how the world thinks of them. And then you got the reality. You know, what am I saying? I'm saying this. Oftentimes what we hear is, listen, the church just, the people outside the church only see Christians as condemning and judgy and hateful. And I have to tell you, most of the Christians I know, I don't think are like that. Sorry if I'm being defensive for Christians for a moment. But I, I do. In fact, if anything, we're probably too much the other way. Too accommodating. Yeah, you know, you're going to have people on social media that, that are that. And yes, you're going to have people. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Of course they do. They exist in this passage. And let's, you know, remember ourselves. The people that instigated the martyrdom of Jesus were not... Uh, Pagans, they were judgmental religious folk. But the point is, the church, we can speak the truth in love. And we need to be praying that we can. But it's not just the face of what was seen in the persecuted, but just briefly here, what that face was shown, okay? Stephen's face, he's focused on his listeners, and then all of a sudden his gaze rises up toward the end. Why did it rise up? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Two things there. Revelation and vindication. Stephen sees revelation and vindication. Uh, When it says the heavens open up, it's this idea that this is divine revelation. This isn't just him kind of seeing things. God is revealing something. Uh, You know, those of you that are Harry Potter fans, you know, one of my, you know, favorite scenes, there's many, um, here I'm referring to the movies, um, not the books, okay? I didn't read the books. <laughs> but, you know, the movies were just like the books. Everybody said so. <laughs> right. You, you'll get more, uh, yeah, I'll get stoned over that, right? Uh, no, I shouldn't make, I don't mean to make like that. But you get my point, okay? We feel passionate about our art. But one of my favorite scenes in the book and the movie is when, you know, it, it dawns on Harry, spoiler alert, right, that he's going to have to, he's going to have to give his life, right? And I, the, the way the whole thing is played, I think, is just so poignant. And he walks, he is alone, 
walking into darkness, into death. And through the old resurrection stone, some people appear to him and comfort him, right? His parents, his uncle, Sirius, black. Remus, right? This idea in the last moment, he's not left alone. In this last moment, Stephen is, or Stephen is not left alone. Divine revelation, right? But here's the thing, because I, I read this, and maybe you read this and you go, you know, I, I would really like that. Like, I, well, will God show me something like that? And Meg was reminding me of something that Cyril said and something she heard in a Bible study as well. Cyril said to us last week when he was preaching about Jacob and Jacob in the Old Testament and he sees the ladder going to heaven and angels descending and ascending it. And he said, you know, that ladder's always there. God just gave Jacob sight to see it. Jesus is always there. Stephen just got a glimpse of what's true for us. You know, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And you know something? We actually have it better than Stephen did. Because Stephen didn't have the whole revelation of God. He got one divine revelation. We have, the scripture is the full revelation of God. And so we have passages like Revelation that says, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His voice was like the sound of many waters. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And he laid his hand on me and he said, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. It might be that you need to hear that On your, less, uh, on your last days, your last breath. And he will be there to say, fear not. You will not go into this alone. He's revealed, Stephen sees Jesus Christ sharing the glory of God, which really enraged his listeners. Because he says, I see the Son of Man, and, and some of you know that's a reference to the book of Daniel, where it talks about a heavenly personality in glory. So in Stephen, Jesus used that designation of himself all the time. Stephen is the only one, only other one that uses that in that way. It's just unique. The first martyr refers, takes Jesus' favorite self-designation upon his lips. He sees the Son of Man in glory. So you, you know, we just had Veterans Day. And um, there's a long practice, right, of uh, soldiers, those of you that have served, and if you were maybe, uh, whether you're on active duty or not, um, people take pictures of loved ones, right? You know, maybe, maybe they're pinned up on the inside of a tank. In World War II, there was actually this thing where uh, soldiers would cut out the photo of either their mother 
or their girlfriend or their wife, and they would screw it into the handle of their gun. They were, they were called sweetheart handles. Now, some of you are sort of like, wow, that's intense. But think about it. They're headed into it. This is going to be it. And right there, pushing them on in their courage, in their fighting, is this vision of beauty and love. And that's what God gives Stephen. Nothing will push you through fire like beauty and love. That's, that's why it's so important in our worship and that we know the grace of God so well that we can get closer to him. You know, and this is, this is what the devil's always doing and this is what our own sin is always doing. Always trying to move us away from the glory of God. We've been given front row seats and because we haven't lived so well or our thoughts aren't so great, you know, day to day, and we just keep stepping back. We keep stepping back and we end up in the bleachers when we had front row seats. And one of the things we try to do here week after week is preach the gospel to ourselves and the grace of God because it's when you get up front and you see him standing in glory, in faith, in majesty, you become courageous. You and I withstand. Again, the thing that's going to help us stand opposition when it comes isn't going to be vengeance. It's not going to be some cultural agenda we have. It's not going to be, I'm just going to kind of grind my teeth. It's going to be, I, am, I will die for that vision. Love is stronger than death. But this vision of the heavenly man is also a function of judgment and salvation. And this is the last point. Vindication. We're told that many times throughout the New Testament, and in fact, it would be worth a little study for you if you wanted to do it this week. Look out how many times you find reference to Jesus at the right hand of God. Over and over, Christ at the right hand of God. What's the right hand of God? It's the place of authority. It's the place of power. It's the place of exaltation. Jesus seated at the right hand of God. But this is different, right? Because he's standing. This is one of the only times or the only time we're told... Jesus is standing at the throne of God. Now, the significance of the sitting is really important. Let me hit the sitting before we get to the standing. Because, you know, if someone's sitting and they get up, a lot could be behind them, right? When I'm sitting down, right, you're sitting down and you get up, maybe a great play happened. Who knows what happened? So what got Jesus up? First of all, the sitting's not insignificant. Listen to this. So the writer of Hebrews is talking the way about Israel's priests over and over and over and over and over. Talk about, like, you know, your day gig. There's, you know, just like your day gig is these offerings and sacrifices over and over. And, hey, hey Frank, how's it going today? It's going okay. What are you, you got, yeah, I got the service at 11. We got, you know, the, you know, I, we need to realize, I mean, this was like everyday work. And it went on and on and on and on and on and on because there needed to be a forgiveness symbolized. But when Christ had offered himself as a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What is that saying? When Jesus sat down, you could finally exhale. When Jesus sat down, it meant your sins can say nothing more to you. Past, present, or future. They're done. The sacrifice has been made. And that's really important, too, because it's hard to be a bold witness if you've got a noisy, guilty conscience. Right? Especially because Stephen is not just going to get stoned with rocks. He's already being stoned with false accusation. And you know what the thing about false accusation, what makes it so hard? You start to believe it. Right? I mean, that's, it starts to get in your head. But then we're told that Jesus stands. And I would say there's a threefold significance of this. Preachers always do this. You think there's one point left, and there's like three more. But really, I, I, this is not going to be long. There's only that much left. <laughs> and you're like, don't fool me with that. You go on a lot more, but okay. What does the standing show? First of all, the standing shows absolute attentiveness. You know, I just said that little thing about kids and parents focused and uncles and aunts focused. Absolute attentiveness on Stephen. He's standing. Made me think about the story of Hagar. She was with Abraham and Sarah, right? And, and Sarah sends her away, and she is like pregnant, and she's, or she has a son pregnant, I think she is, and she's off like nothing there. By, ourselves in the, by herself in the wilderness, and we're told that the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. He comforts her, and this is what she said. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The God that sees. Do you believe and know he sees you? He sees you. Focused, attentive, laser beam on you. But second of all, it's not just absolute attention, it's impending action. When he stands, he's going to do something. Because as the Son of Man, he's also the one that executes judgment. Stephen sees Jesus poised in all of this right with time. <laughs> we got to deal with the time. When it'll come, we don't know. But he will be vindicated for the wrong that is against him. God will vindicate his people. I was reading a story. Uh, 2019, this man, Mark Shand, um, he had spent 27 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. He was exonerated. And uh, rightly, they gave him, uh, actually, I think it was one of the first civil action awards that gotten, anyway, he got a lot of money for it, but he said this, after all this time, this is the first time there was some acknowledgement that someone had done something in my wrongful conviction. Someone was responsible for it, and you know, that was almost better than the monetary damages they gave me. I mean, you know, you might have a load of money, but this idea that God will vindicate you, and that helps us not to take vengeance Right? At the church, one of the things we, we do want to get better at, the church publicly, is try, not being so defensive. 
We want to defend justice and righteousness and freedom, right? Those things are important for love of neighbor. But we'll have to trust he's going to vindicate us. But the last one, absolute attention when he stands, poised to judge and act for the sake of his people. But also, he's getting ready to receive Stephen. He's getting ready to receive him. In just a moment's time, Stephen will fall asleep. And he will fall into the arms of the great martyr Jesus. Someone had said, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Here he comes, Father. Right? Here he comes. And actually, God receives all his children that way. But there's something else in Revelation that Jesus says. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Can you get your mind around that? Stephen's not going to just like show up. He's going to show up and I don't know how it works. Jesus is going to scoot over and Stephen's going to sit right next to him. I mean, you, you, you might have liked sitting on Santa's lap, but this ain't even close to that, right? Can you, can you even imagine that idea? This is our God. This is the Christian gospel. Um, let's pray.